Well, good evening again. You know, this week is going by fast. This is our sixth message in a series of nine messages. So after tonight, we will be two-thirds of the way through this week, and I can't believe that, really. But it's been my privilege, and it's been a blessing for me to be here with you, and I'm glad that it's not over yet. And so... I'm looking forward to our message for tonight. Before we get into the message, I'd like to kneel and invite you to bow your heads with me as I pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here this evening. We thank you that you have a plan for each of our lives and that you want us to gain a blessing again this evening from the message And I just pray that you would speak through me in a special way. Give me just the words to speak. And may the lives that we talk about this evening be a source of encouragement, hope, and strength to each one of us. Is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So the message for this evening is entitled, The Sacrificial Faith of the reformers and what we have seen so far in this series we saw the message um, in church on sabbath of the need to wake up that it is high time to wake up out of sleep and we saw that god has a pure church but that he needs some wise virgins to wake up And we saw that we are in a lukewarm condition, but God is going to take his lukewarm church and prepare us to meet Jesus in the clouds. And then we saw some examples that we can look at from Scripture that gives us encouragement and hope. We saw the faith of Abraham. We saw the faith that he believed in the creative power of God to bring new life. We saw that his life is the essence of the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. Then we saw the courage and sacrificing life of Elijah. And last night, which for me personally was my favorite message, was about Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice, and of the sacrifice that he made for each one of us on the cross and how he chose to risk everything to provide a way of salvation for each one of us. Now tonight, the story continues because after Jesus died on the cross and he ascended back to heaven, the Christian church underwent changes slowly over time through the centuries and the church in Rome specifically lost the essence of what Christianity had been all about. Whereas the disciples who had been with Jesus, they went forth proclaiming the gospel, and the gospel reached the then-known world in the generation of the apostles. And they lived lives of sacrifice, of faith, of martyrdom. They were persecuted by the pagan Roman Empire, but somehow, somewhere along the way, the Christian church felt that they would gain more influence in the world if they compromised and became more like the pagan Roman nation that was influencing the world. And so Christianity, primitive early Christianity, lost much of what it 
once had. And in fact, the Christian church went from being a, a faith that was based on the Bible and the Bible only to the Bible and the traditions of the fathers. And the traditions of the fathers often had nothing to do and were in plain contradiction with the clear teachings of Scripture. And in fact, the Bible told of this time, way back in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 7, that not only would the Christian church fall away from its beginnings, but it would persecute the saints who would maintain a pure faith. And in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, we read, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. And, the, and when it says they shall be given, those are the saints who were worn out by this little horn power in the, described in Daniel chapter 7, who would speak words against the God of heaven. And in Daniel chapter 11, we see how specifically this power persecuted the saints. Specifically, in verse 33, it says, They that understand among the people shall instruct many, yet they shall fall by the sword, and by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. And those many days are the same many days as the time times and the dividing times in Daniel chapter 7. The point is this, when God's people were worn out by this persecuting power, there were four primary means that God's people were persecuted by. And we see it in Daniel 11:33. They were persecuted by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by spoil. Now, the sword, that's pretty obvious. Many were put to death by the sword. That was the main weapon of destruction, the way the gun is today. And not only were they put to death by the sword, some of them were put to death by flame. They were burned at the stake for their faith. Some, by captivity, they were left to die in prisons and in dungeons after great lengths of captivity. And then the last point, and by spoil. Do you know what by spoil is? What would happen is the Pope would make a decree saying, if you kill these heretics, you will not only gain everlasting life, but you will gain their property as well. And so if you were considered a heretic, not only, I mean, the inducement for you to be put to death was great because people were told by the Pope, if you kill that heretic, not only will you gain eternal life, but you'll gain temporal prosperity as well because you'll get all their property. And so that is what the faithful saints were facing during these many years when the professed Christian church went into apostasy. But thankfully, thankfully, we see, even here in, in Daniel chapter 7, we see that there were saints during that time who were worn out. They are, they are described in Daniel 11 as those who would instruct the people there were faithful people all through these centuries. Even though the professed Christian church had gone astray, there were faithful people among 
the people of this earth. And the first group of people that I want to describe, although they're not officially classified as part of the Reformation, they certainly prepared the way for the Reformation. These are the people known as the Waldenses. How many of you have heard of the Waldenses? Amen. And I just want to read a few things to you out of the book Great Controversy. And if you've never read the book Great Controversy, the book Great Controversy is a great source of church history from about the time of the first century all the way, all the way till the second coming. And in Great Controversy, page 61, we read, Amid the gloom that settled upon the earth during the long period of papal supremacy, the light of truth could not be wholly extinguished. In every age, there were witnesses for God, men who cherished faith in Christ as the only mediator between God and man, who held the Bible as the only rule of life, and who hallowed the true Sabbath. Now, it's wonderful to know that despite the widespread declension of much of Christianity, there were still people who cherished faith in Christ as the only mediator between God and man. We don't have to go to another man to get mediation from Christ. We can go boldly to the throne of grace. There were people who held the Bible as the only rule of life. I'm thankful that even during that time, there were people who said, we will live by the Bible and the Bible only, not the Bible plus the traditions of man. And there were those who held the true Sabbath even during those times. How much the world owes to these men, posterity will never know. They were branded as heretics, their motives impugned, their characters maligned, their writings suppressed, misrepresented, or mutilated. Yet they stood firm and from age to age maintained their faith in its purity as a sacred heritage for the generations to come. And so we've seen Old Testament characters. We've seen that Jesus was a faithful example and that he paid the ultimate sacrifice. But we see that because of what Jesus did on the cross, it paved the way for people to live lives of self-sacrifice against all odds and against all persecution and against all the powers of this world because they had found in Jesus someone to love, someone to trust, and someone to put their entire entire hope and faith in. And if people living in what is known as the dark ages of earth's history could maintain their hold on the God of heaven, surely we could maintain our hold on God in this time. We aren't being persecuted right now. We have freedom of conscience to worship God as we choose. There is no excuse for us to let go of our hold on a God who is so good and so loving to us. And as we get into some specifics about the Waldenses, I want to read a few things here. Of those who resisted the encroachments of the papal power, the Waldenses stood foremost. In the very land where popery had fixed its seat, that's the land of Italy, there its falsehood and corruption were most steadfastly resisted. For centuries, the churches of Piedmont, which are the Waldenses, maintained their independence, but the time came at last when Rome insisted upon their submission. And so finally, the Waldenses had to flee from the more obvious places, and they fled into the mountains, into the caves, where they were not so easily found. 
And what kind of lives did the Waldenses live even during this time of opposition and persecution? In page 67 of Great Controversy we read, pure, simple, and fervent was the piety of these followers of Christ. The principles of truth they valued above houses and lands, friends, kindred, even life itself. Listen, has Jesus made such an impression upon your heart and upon your life that the principles upon which he lived and the principles of truth which Christ has given to us, are they valued in your life above houses and lands, friends, relatives, and life itself? This was a group of people that said, we love Jesus so much. He sacrificed all in, of heaven to die for us, to make a way of salvation for us. We will gladly risk everything to follow such a God. And continuing, these principles they earnestly sought to impress upon the hearts of the young. You know, the, the most important work that we as God's people can do in our church is to impress the principles of truth and of the love of Christ upon the young people in our church because they are the future of our church. And as the Waldenses saw that they needed to pass this tradition, or not tradition, this faith, down to the young, so we should as well. From earliest childhood, the youth were instructed in the scriptures and taught to regard sacredly the claims of the law of God. You know, from the earliest age with our children, we should be having worship with them, teaching them about Jesus, teaching them about how Jesus loves us. And with our daughter, Sarah we started having worship with her as soon as she was born. And she probably didn't know what we were saying, but by now, she can say Jesus. She knows who Jesus is when we show her the pictures. And I pray that, that, that the, the teaching and the instruction we are giving her will impress upon her heart and her mind the beauty and the character of Jesus throughout her life. Copies of the Bible were rare, therefore its precious words were committed to memory. Many were able to repeat large portions of both the Old and the New Testament. Listen, they didn't simply learn how to read the Bible. They could repeat large portions of the Bible from memory. Now I have to ask the question. We have how many Bibles in our homes? I mean, I don't know how many Bibles I have in my house. I suspect many of you have a lot of Bibles as well. Maybe some of you don't have as many, but listen, they didn't have the Bibles in large portions. They had little portions, leaflets here and there of portions of Scripture, and the Bible was so dear and so precious that they would memorize large portions so that they would always have it up here and they could write it down whenever they needed to. And if they could do that, what is our excuse for not knowing the truths of Scripture when we have it so readily at our hands? What an example they are to us. And they did so under opposition. Continuing on. Parents, tender and affectionate as they were, loved their children too wisely to accustom them to self-indulgence. Before them was a life of trial and hardship, perhaps a martyr's death. 
And you know, when we study the Bible and we see what's going to happen at the end before Jesus comes back, it may just so happen that our children will face things that we aren't called to face and we need to prepare them for those times of trial that are coming. And listen, we need to be ready for those times as well because we don't know how soon those times of trial may come. And the Wallensies prepared their children to perhaps face even a martyr's death. They were educated from childhood to endure hardness, to submit to control, and yet to think and act for themselves. Very early they were taught to bear responsibilities, to be guarded in speech, and to understand the wisdom of silence. You know, sometimes we just learn how to just speak what's on our mind, say whatever we're thinking, and so many times we hurt people's feelings. We wound deeply because we don't think before we speak. And we could learn from, from this as well. There's more that I, we could say, but I will, I will just close on the Walden Seas by the last paragraph in this chapter by reading. The persecutions visited for many centuries upon this God-fearing people were endured by them with a patience and constancy that honored their Redeemer. Notwithstanding the crusades against them and the inhuman butchery to which they were subjected, they continued to send out their mystery, missionaries to scatter the precious truth. They were hunted to death, yet their blood watered the seed sown, and it failed not of yielding fruit. Thus the Waldenses witnessed for God centuries before the birth of Martin Luther. Scattered over many lands, they planted the seeds of the Reformation that began in the time of John Wycliffe, grew broad and deep in the days of Luther, and is to be carried forward to the close of time by those who also are willing to suffer all things for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice, their testimony, their lives the example they give to us carries forward to the close of time. They laid the foundation to bring upon the great reformers of John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, Martin Luther, the great reformer who stood up against the entire Roman Catholic system. And their example also carries forward to our time because we are, as Scripture says, to suffer all things for the Word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Listen, we need to have the type of faith that says, listen, if the Word of God tells us how to live our lives, we will put our lives on the line to be faithful for the Word of God to be faithful for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Because if Jesus was faithful and paid the ultimate sacrifice, and if he calls us to be living sacrifices, then by the grace of God, we will dedicate our lives to be living sacrifices in faithfulness to the word of God. And if the Waldenses could do so amidst such opposition, by the grace of God, we can as well. After the Walden Seas had laid the foundation, the Lord saw fit to raise up men, individuals who would stand up in strength of character, with force and with power, and to start to shed light upon the darkness that had come over the world. Because the Bible had been taken away from the people. People were not allowed to read the Bible. Only the priests and the monks and the scholars, those who were educated, were allowed to read the scripture, and the people would only hear small passages of scripture when they would come to church. And the Lord saw fit 
to raise up men who would translate the Bible into the native languages of the people so that we could read the Bible for ourselves. You know, sometimes we forget the sacrifice that has been paid for us to have a Bible in our hands. This is the word of God. And the devil fought against this word with all of his might, yet God prevailed and made a way for us to have access to it today. And we should know this word of God. We should know what the Bible says for ourselves. You shouldn't rely on me for what the Bible means. You shouldn't rely on anybody else. You should know for yourselves the word of God. And the first key character after the Walden Seas to talk about, and boy, we're really just going to hit high points in one night to talk about the various reformers. John Wycliffe, who is described as the morning star of the Reformation. John Wycliffe was the one who translated the Bible into English. And he, in many ways, was perhaps the greatest reformer because he saw things that reformers who came after him didn't even see. He saw the, some of the errors of having the church and the state united. Some of the other reformers after him didn't see that. He saw the problem with the mass. Other reformers who came after him didn't see that. And so he laid a foundation that would make it possible for the Reformation to continue on to the close of time. Let me just read a few things. Specifically about John Wycliffe. Like after reformers, Wycliffe did not, at the opening of his work, foresee whither it would lead him. He did not set himself deliberately in opposition to Rome, but devotion to truth could not but bring him in conflict with falsehood. The more clearly he discerned the errors of the papacy, the more earnestly he presented the teachings of the Bible. He saw that Rome had forsaken the word of God for human tradition. He fearlessly accused the priesthood of having banished the scriptures and demanded that the Bible be restored to the people and that its authority be again established in the church. Now, we marvel at such a concept today, but in his time, he was putting his life on the line to say, you know what, we need to put tradition down and raise the Bible up. Amen. He was an able and earnest teacher and an eloquent preacher, and his daily life was a demonstration of the truths that he preached. His knowledge of the scriptures, the force of his reasoning, the purity of his life, and his unbending courage and integrity won for him general esteem and confidence. And you know, he... He did the work of translating the Bible into English. The, the papal church tried to put him to death, but the Lord spared his life and he died his death of natural causes. Years after his death, the, the papists came along and said, let's, let's make an example out of Wycliffe. They dug up his bones out of the grave and they burned them. They cast them into the river. But as one person noted, when his ashes went down the river, river they spread out to the sea and the sea carried his ashes to the rest of the world, which is emblematic of how the work of Reformation spread to the entire world. So rather than burning his bones to erase his memory, their action actually showed what his life had done, that the work of his life had spread to the entire world. 
Great Controversy, page 93, the great movement that Wycliffe inaugurated, which was to liberate the conscience and the intellect and set free the nation so long bound to the triumphal car of Rome, had its spring in the Bible. Here was the source of that stream of blessing, which, like the water of life, has flowed down the ages since the 14th century. Wycliffe accepted the Holy Scriptures with implicit faith as the inspired revelation of God's will, a sufficient rule of faith and practice. You know, we may not see such significance now, but for what Wycliffe did, it, he put his life on the line, but because he was faithful, because he lived a self-sacrificing life, and because he found in the Bible the truth of God's word and the loveliness of Jesus, he was willing to say, no matter what the powers of earth may be, I will do all I can in my life to get this message to others around me, to the people of my country, so they can read these precious truths, so that the word of God can go forward and give people the truths of the beauty of God. After John Wycliffe came Huss and Jerome. Huss and Jerome lived in what is now modern-day Prague, which is in the Czech Republic. It was known as Bohemia back at that time. John Huss specifically started preaching from the Bible in the language of the people. That was a big no-no from the Catholic Church. You had to preach in Latin. And again, what a novel concept to preach in the language that we understand. And yet, because he was preaching in the language that the people understood, he was putting his life on the line. And then John Huss started to notice that there were serious, serious defects in the leadership of his church. And in fact, the pope that he was speaking out against, he was saying these abuses of power, these sins need to be corrected. We need to follow the word of God in the church. And because he was willing to point out the sins in the church at that time, he was basically faced with being burned at the stake. But the, the very interesting thing is the pope that he was condemned condemning was also condemned by the group that pronounced that he should be burned at the stake because this pope was so vile he had committed murders and adultery and many other vile sins that they had to remove him from office but they couldn't take a common preacher who was pointing out these sins and so they burned him at the stake but John Huss was a living sacrifice he gives us an example of being faithful to the word of God. And his friend Jerome also did a work of reform. Now, it's interesting, Jerome, when he was thrown in prison, he recanted and said, okay, I'll, I'll give it my faith. But then he changed his mind and he said, how could I turn back on the faith that I have given everything for? And eventually he was burned at the stake as well. One interesting point about John Huss is that as he was on his way to Prague at the very beginning of his ministry, his mother was taking him to the city to, for him to start his education, and as they saw the city off in the distance, his mother knelt down and prayed with him that the Lord would use his life in a powerful way. And little did she know the power of that prayer. Amen. And never give up on praying for your children. Pray for them every day. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. But you know, the reformer that certainly is worth spending a great deal of time talking about is none other than Martin Luther. 
How many of you have been blessed by reading about the life and history of Martin Luther? Amen. Martin Luther was from the country of Germany, as you know. And Martin Luther was a very devout man, and he wanted to do God's will. And one day, and this is from Great Controversy, page 122, Martin Luther was in the library. Notice what we read here. Well, one day examining the books in the library of the university, Luther discovered a Latin Bible. Such a book he had never before seen. He was ignorant even of its existence. He had heard portions of the Gospels and Epistles, which were read to the people at public worship, and he supposed that these were the entire Bible. Can you imagine that? Just portions of the Gospel and the Epistles? He thought that was the entire Bible. Now, for the first time, he looked upon the whole of God's Word. With mingled awe and wonder, he turned the sacred pages. With quickened pulse and throbbing heart, he read for himself the words of life, pausing now and then to exclaim, Oh, that God would give me such a book for myself. And you know, we have that book. We have that privilege. And Martin Luther, probably or arguably the greatest reformer, if not one of the greatest reformers, when he first found the Bible, he said, oh, I wished I had a Bible like this for myself. He didn't even have a Bible. Continuing, angels of God were by his side and rays of light from the throne of God revealed the treasures, treasures of truth to his understanding. He had ever feared to offend God, but now the deep conviction of, of his condition as a sinner took hold upon him as never before. And then he decided, boy, I, I need to get really close to God. So he decided to join um, and he decided to become a monk and go into a cloister or an abbey or whatever you call it. And he lived a monastic life and he would spend whatever spare time he could get to study the word of God. But he had a problem. He thought that he had to offend an, an avenging God, that he had to make up for the sins that he had committed. And so he would fast for long periods of time and try to show God true penance. Oh God, do you see all these works that I am doing? But then we read something interesting, Great Controversy 123. When it, appeared, when it appeared to Luther that all was lost, God raised up a friend and helper for him. The pious Staupitz opened the word of God to Luther's mind and bade him look away from himself, cease the contemplation of infinite punishment for the violation of God's law, and look to Jesus, his sin-pardoning Savior. Instead of torturing yourself on account of your sins, throw yourself into the Redeemer's arms. Trust in Him, in the righteousness of His life, in the atonement of His death. Listen to the Son of God. He became man to give you the assurance of divine favor. Love Him who first loved you. Thus spoke this messenger of mercy. His words made a deep impression upon Luther's mind. After many a struggle with long-cherished errors, he was enabled to grasp the truth, and peace came to his soul. Aren't you so thankful that Luther came to realize that God is a God of love who's not trying to zap you every time you mess up? who is a God of mercy, that when we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us, that we have an advocate, that he loves us, that he will accept us, and that we don't need to go and like do extra penance when we've fallen. That's works. You can't do anything to the forgiveness that God gives you. You can't add to that. All you can do is come to him with a repentant heart, and he will give you salvation. 
And Luther discovered that. Now, Luther still was very much bound to the Church of Rome. And as he studied the Bible, he just figured, you know, when you study the Bible and you find the truth of God's word, as you share it with your fellow believers, they will also be glad to hear the truths of Scripture. And so Luther said, you know, the city of Rome, that is the headquarters of our church. I want to go to Rome. And so he made a pilgrimage from Germany to Italy, to Rome. And when he saw Rome for the first time, he said, Holy Rome, I salute thee. But you know, when Martin Luther got to Rome, he found something far from holy. He found that iniquity existed among all classes of the clergy. He heard among the church leaders indecent jokes. He, he was met with what was called dissipation and debauchery. They were just making light of the whole service of church. And Martin Luther thought, boy, if you would follow what the Bible says, how could you be living such a life? And he could not believe the attitude and the spirit that existed at Rome. But he was still in Rome, and he wanted to follow the teachings of the church. And a decree had been made that if you would ascend Pilate's staircase, you would receive a special blessing. Now, here's one of the interesting claims of the papal church during that era of, of, of history. They claimed that Pilate's staircase from Jerusalem had been miraculously transported from Israel to Italy. And the people were in such a darkened state of mind, they believed the church. And so Martin Luther was climbing up the steps when the great moment of the Reformation took place in Martin Luther's life. He heard a voice as he was climbing up the steps, and he heard that voice say, the just shall live by faith. And he realized at that moment that he was not living by faith. He was living by works. And here's the interesting thing. That phrase, the just shall live by faith, is found in Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It was as if God knew that the message to the Christian church at Rome in the first century was the message that the Christian church would need to bring down the church of Rome in later centuries that had obstructed the pure truth of the gospel. The just shall live by faith. That message was given to the church of Rome in the first century by the Apostle Paul. And it was that verse that led to the undoing of the false teachings of papal Rome that had elevated human traditions over the word of God that taught people that you can buy indulgences and gain eternal life. Pay me $100 and you'll be saved forever. And yet scripture says you can't work your way to heaven. You accept God's gift of salvation by grace through faith. And God used Martin Luther to bring out this truth of salvation so clearly. The just shall live by faith. And Martin Luther went back to Germany and he 
was a different man. He started preaching the truths from Scripture. He started preaching clearly that in the Roman church they were not following the Word of God. He was preaching what the Word of God really teaches, and a work of reformation began. And remember when we talked about the Elijah message, whenever you have revival, reformation follows. You have a revived Christian experience, and change comes into your life. You don't just go run, running around excited without a change in your heart. A change in the heart, a change in the life, a change in the practices comes along with revival. And Martin Luther was preaching that if we are going to follow what the Word of God teaches, then we need to change how we practice our faith. And he nailed 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. And finally, the papal church had seen enough. They started issuing what are called papal bulls, condemning Martin Luther. Finally, the, the, the time came when he was excommunicated from the church, and he was called to stand before what is known as the Diet of Worms, or Worms in Germany. And this diet was called by the emperor of Germany, Charles V the emperor of the state. And Martin Luther had every reason to believe that as he went to this diet to face the leaders of the church and of the nation, that he was going to his death. The reformers that had come before him, they had been burned at the stake. And the leaders of the church, they were trying to design things in such a way so that Martin Luther would also be put to death. But they had a problem. The people in Germany loved Martin Luther. They loved the liberation of the gospel that he was teaching. And they saw that his teachings were truth and the papal teachings were error that Martin Luther's teachings were based on the Word of God. And Martin Luther came to the town of Worms, or Worms, and he was facing what he thought might be death. He was facing a time where he would have to answer for his faith. And I want to read to you how earnestly Martin Luther prayed the night before he faced the leaders of the world at that time in the area that he lived in. Notice Martin Luther's prayer. O oh God, my God, hearest thou me not? My God, art thou dead? No, thou canst not die. Thou hidest thyself only. Thou hast chosen me for this work. I know it will. Act then, O oh God. Stand at my side for the sake of thy well-beloved Jesus Christ, who is my defense, my shield, and my strong tower. Then comes an interval of silence. Again, we hear his voice. Lord, where stayest thou? O oh my God, where art thou? Come, come, I am ready. I am ready to lay down my life for thy truth. Patient as a lamb, for it is the cause of justice. It is thine. I will never separate myself from thee, never, neither now nor through eternity. And though the world should be filled with devils, though my body, which is still the work of thy hands, should be slain, should be racked on the wheel, cut in pieces, reduced to ashes. My soul is thine. Yes, thy word is my assurance of it. My soul belongs to thee. It shall abide forever with thee. Amen. O oh God, help me. Amen. Amen. What a prayer. Coming face to face with God, face to face with what seemed death, 
the next day and you see Martin Luther, Luther's faith. He is willing to be a living sacrifice, but he will be faithful to God unto death. What a man of faith. What a prayer. And if you notice that prayer, we need to learn those types of prayers when we pray to God. Those are the types of prayers that bring forth power from heaven and power from God. And so finally Martin Luther comes before the Diet of Worms and basically they tell him, listen, either you retract or we will condemn you. And Martin Luther's response is, I will retract, I will retract if you show me from the Bible where I am wrong. And you know, that is the way it should always be. Show me from the Bible. Don't tell me your opinion. So many times we hear people say, yeah, that's what the Bible says, but I think. Let's get away with that I think thing, and let's just stick with what the Word of God says. Amen. And Martin Luther says, I will retract if you show me from the Word of God where I am in error. And so finally the time came where they said, either you retract or you will be cut off from the church. They said, will you or will you not retract? And notice Martin Luther's words, and this is certainly worth reading. The Reformer answered, this is a great controversy, page 160. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require from me a clear, simple, and precise answer, I will give you one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, and unless they thus render my conscience bound by the word of God, I cannot and I will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. Amen. You realize that when Martin Luther said these words, he was standing before the powers of the world of his time. And a day is coming where God's people, those who have the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, are going to be called before councils and before rulers. And God is going to be looking for people who, like Martin Luther, will stand before the powers of the world and will say, show me from the Bible where I am wrong. If you can show me, I will retract. But if you cannot, here I stand. God help me. Amen. Thus stood this righteous man upon the sure foundation of the word of God. The light of heaven illuminated his countenance, his greatness and purity of character, his peace and joy of heart were manifest to all as he testified against the power of error and witness to the superiority of that faith that overcomes the world. The whole assembly were for a time speechless with amazement. And finally, page 166, had Martin Luther yielded a single point, Satan and his host would have gained the victory. But his unwavering firmness was the means of emancipating the church and beginning a new and better era. 
The influence of this one man who dared to think and act for himself in religious matters was to affect the church and the world not only in his own time, but in all future generations. His firmness and fidelity would strengthen all to the close of time who should pass through a similar experience. The power and majesty of God stood forth above the counsel of men, above the mighty power of Satan. Listen, if you ever face a time in the future of this type of opposition, of this type of persecution. Just remember that God was with Martin Luther, and if he would be with Martin Luther, he will be with you. That he can enable you to stand firm no matter what. Now, in the last few minutes here, we just have a few minutes left, let me just mention a few points in passing. Martin Luther was taken to the Wartburg Castle as a prisoner by friends, to be protected from papal Rome. And during that time, that's when he translated the New Testament into the German language. And it was during that time in his hometown of Wittenberg that fanaticism showed up. And you know what? Whenever the true work of revival and reform comes to God's church, the devil will bring fanaticism along as well. Beware. You know... What happened in Martin Luther's time has happened in the church many times over. And what happened was there were these teachers who came along and they said, we love the spirit of the Reformation, but you know what? We can improve upon the Reformation. You don't really need to worry about the Bible either. Just follow the spirit. The spirit is greater than the Bible. The spirit will take you to a higher level of experience. We agree that the papal church is bad as well, but let's get past the Reformation, let's get past Martin Luther's teachings, let's get past the papacy, and let's just follow the Spirit and feel good and not worry about following any specific outlines from Scripture. And so Martin Luther eventually cut short his captivity, he came back to Wittenberg, and he had to meet the fanaticism head on. Let me warn you about some specific areas of fanaticism that have come into God's church today. Now, some of you may have never heard of these things, but you may hear about it at some point in the future, so it's worth mentioning. There are people in God's church today who are claiming that in order to receive the seal of the living God, you need to accept a teaching of a so-called prophecy called the 2520. Have any of you ever heard of that thing? Praise the Lord, only one person. That makes me happy. Beware. That prophecy or so-called prophecy is not found anywhere by name in inspiration. And there are other teachings that have come in as well recently, like you have to keep feast days or lunar Sabbaths or things like that. Those things are a distraction from the message for our time. And just as Martin Luther had to deal with fanaticism in his time, we are facing that as well in our time. After the time of Martin Luther, there was the French Reformation, but in France, they resisted the Reformation. They persecuted the reformers. The Huguenots were cut down, put to death. And unfortunately, France did not go as far as Germany did. Now, ultimately in France, you have the culmination of the 1,260 years that we talked about, the time times and the half time from Daniel 7, 25, where the French Revolution at that end of the 1,260 years took place. Now, how many of you have studied the French Revolution? This happens at the end of the time of papal supremacy. It's talked about in Revelation chapter 11. It's, it's a time when 
atheistic principles came into the world, where the Bibles were burned in the streets, where the church leaders of the Catholic Church were burned and, and done away with. And have you ever wondered why the French Revolution is mentioned in Bible prophecy in Revelation chapter 11 at the end of the 1260 years? What was the purpose of the French Revolution? Why did it happen? Well, I'll tell you in a nutshell. In France, of all the countries of Europe, the papal teachings and authority had been given the most authority and power. And it was in France that the Reformation met the most resistance. And the people in France, their view of God was skewed. Their view was based on what they had seen from the church. And their view was that God was a mean, avenging God who was looking to get you if you didn't follow what he said and that he would zap you and cause you to burn throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity if you didn't do things exactly the way they said you should do them. And the Reformation had brought light and had cast out that darkness. But in France, that darkness persisted. And finally, that darkness persisted for so long that the people said, if this is what Christianity is, we want to get rid of it. And they got rid of it completely and got rid of the papacy. And in France, it was where the deadly wound was delivered in 1798. But here's the thing. If you study Revelation chapter 13, you see that the dragon, or Satan, gave his power, seat, and authority to the beast, which is what we're talking about. And over 1,260 years, it took that long for the principles of the dragon or of Satan to develop fully. And they finally developed fully after 1,260 years in the country of France where the papacy, who had been following the biddings of the dragon for all that period of time, finally the principles of his, of his government gained full fruit. And in the full characteristics of, of Satan's government, you see complete anarchy, a completely godless society, and a doing away with scripture. It took that long to reach that point of utter anarchy. But if you want to know what this world would be like if God didn't have a hand in it, just look at the French Revolution. And what happened over those 1,260 years is going to happen again at the end of time. And I want to read to you a quote. This is from Ellen White. This is 13 Manuscript Releases, page 394. 393, 394. Here she says, We have no time to lose. Troublous times are before us. The world is stirred with the spirit of war. Soon the scenes of trouble spoken of and the prophecies will take place. The prophecy in the 11th of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. Much of the history that has taken place in fulfillment of this prophecy will be repeated. Now she goes into what's going to be repeated. In the 30th verse, a power is spoken of that shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. Covenant. Then she quotes Daniel 11, verses 31 through 36, part of which we have read already. Remember, we read the four things of how God's saints would be persecuted by the papacy, by the sword, by the flame, by captivity, and by spoil. She quotes these six verses, Daniel 11, 31 through 36. This is a time in verse 31 where you see arms will stand on the part of the papacy. They gain military strength. Then you see they persecute God's people in verses 31 down through 35. 
And then after she quotes these verses, after she talks about how God's people were persecuted by the papacy during this time of earth's history, she says after that, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place. Now, why did I read this quote? Why did I read that, those verses in that statement? Because what we've been talking about tonight, the Walden Seas, John Wycliffe, Huss and Jerome, Martin Luther, the French Reformation, the Huguenots, they were persecuted throughout those many days. And Ellen White quotes those verses and then says, scenes similar to those described in these words will take place, meaning the, the heroes of the Reformation, the persecutions that they went through, God's people who lived in the last days, they will live through such experiences as well in a similar manner, not for such a long period of time, but in a similar characteristic. And so why did we spend time talking about the sacrificial faith of the reformers tonight? Because at the end of time, God is going to have a group of people that is going to go through a similar experience. And if we're going to go through a similar experience, we would do well to learn from the experiences of those who went through those experiences already, would we not? And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, we see this experience personified. It says, the dragon was wroth with the woman. That's God's church. And went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. A day is coming where the devil is going to make one last attack against God's remnant. The way he attacked the church throughout the dark ages and he attacked the Walden Seas and the reformers. And he is going to make one final charge against God's people. He is enraged. He is furious. And he is going to try to destroy God's church. But God is going to have a group of people here on this earth who, like the Reformers, like the Waldenses, who will say, we will be faithful to God and God alone. We will be faithful to the Word, to the Word of God, and to the testimony of Jesus Christ alone. We we will be faithful unto death. Show us from the Bible where we are wrong. Here we stand. God help us. Amen. Amen. And by the grace of God, God wants each one of us here to be among those people. Amen. Do you want to be among the remnant at the end of time who faces the dragon but through the power of Christ can have such a testimony as a Martin Luther or a John Huss? or a John Wycliffe, or the Walden Seas. We should be training our children now and ourselves for such a time that is coming upon the world. But listen, that's not a time that we should be so afraid of, as oftentimes we can be. You know why we get afraid of end-time events? It's because we aren't connected to Jesus. Amen. If we're connected to Jesus, and we remember, he was a living sacrifice. He was crucified on the cross. He risked all of heaven to come and save us. He will be with us when we give our lives to him as we go through the final crisis. Is it going to be fun? No. But if we, are, if we know that we are on the Lord's side, will we have peace? Absolutely. Yes, it may be trying. Yes, we may be praying, and I hope we will be praying, the way Martin Luther prayed. 
But if God could get Martin Luther through that experience, if God the Father helped Jesus the Son get through Gethsemane and Calvary, he will be with his remnant at the end of time. And if we're going to be faithful, let's go back and read these stories. Get a copy of The Great Controversy. Go back to that book if you haven't read it for a while. Read the stories of the heroes of our faith who give us an example of how to live up until the very end of time. And I believe that time is coming very soon. And I believe that when we have meetings like this and we hear messages like this, it's one more opportunity that God is giving us to prepare ourselves to be ready for that day. You know, we've been hearing messages for years now about the time that, are, that is to come. What more does God need to do to get us ready? It's left to us now to make that decision, to read for ourselves, to study for ourselves, to choose for ourselves, to say, I will be faithful unto death. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, this is where we will close for tonight. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it says, And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. Listen, if we have the blood of the Lamb and if we have the word of a testimony of our experience in our lives, that we love not life to the death because we love Jesus so much, then surely... God will take us through to the very end. Some of us may be martyrs for the faith. Some of us may go all the way through to the very closing scenes of earth's history. But whatever the case may be, as long as we are faithful unto death, that is the only thing that matters. Those of you who want to recommit your lives tonight to say, I want to be faithful unto death. I want to have the, the zeal, the courage, and the faith of the reformers. I would invite you to stand with me at this time as we have a special prayer of consecration. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the history that you've given us in the lives of the reformers, of their sacrificial faith, how they risked everything, how some were burned at the stake. As John Huss was being burned at the stake, he was crying out, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. May we have such a faith as that. May we be like a Martin Luther who will face all the powers of the world and still stand firm. Lord, we know a time is coming where we will face the entire world, but we are thankful that through your power, we will be the majority. May we be faithful. May we learn to love you more and more each day. May we rest in your love. May we not be afraid of the times that are to come, but may we be prepared. May we be realistic. May we have an understanding of what we really are facing. And when that great day comes, when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, may we be among those who say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So tomorrow night, we have the night off, but Friday night, you are going to want to be here because the next step is we are going to see how God, after the Reformation ended, he raised up the final movement of prophetic church prophecy, whatever you want to call it, the Advent movement, to prepare people for the coming of the Lord. We will see clearly from Scripture how God raised up that movement, and not only how he raised it up, but how that movement will culminate at the very end of time. So you will want to be here two nights from now, and enjoy your night off tomorrow night.
God bless you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.